Give your Bibles. I'm going to ask that you would turn to John, the book of John, John chapter 20, John chapter 20. And we'll begin reading at verse 10. And as I, as you do so, we want to draw our attention to what we are actually looking at. And what we're doing is that we are now uh, looking we're hearing of the first people who discovered that the Lord Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. He was crucified publicly on Good Friday in front of many witnesses who hated him and some even who loved him. He was publicly displayed as crucified and verified that he was dead. And then he was buried and sealed in a tomb. And so today we look at the first day of the week. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other, uh, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We'll stop there. First point I want uh, us to see here, I think that the scriptures want us to see, is this. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories were God's glorious plan. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories were God's glorious plan. So this, this was always the plan from the very beginning. The resurrection from the dead of the Messiah. We saw that in verse 9. They, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This was God's glorious plan. That the Messiah must rise from the dead. In order to rise from the dead, you have to be killed first. You have to die first. This was God's glorious plan, but we have to see from this, and as we read through it, we're going to discover it was not their plan. This was not their plan. Each of the people that we're going to bump into today as we're reading the scripture, other than Jesus, (laughs) was not expecting this. This was not their plan, Christ rising from the dead. And because that, each of them needed to see evidence. They were not shown a tomb with door closed and dead body of Jesus inside and saying, believe that he's raised. Mary Magdalene, when she saw the tomb opened, she was not even first assuming, well, this must mean that Jesus had risen. She assumed that the Pharisees had come and stolen the body, which of course they never would have done because the empty tomb was proof that they were sons of Satan for crucifying the Messiah. It wasn't until Peter and John saw the tomb empty that they began to believe 
maybe even began to desire, began to hope that Jesus had been risen. They had been told that Jesus would rise from the dead. Jesus was not shy about this. They had been told he would rise from the dead, but Peter didn't like that plan. We, we read that Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. John is writing this book and that's how John refers to himself. The other disciple whom Jesus loved. This wasn't Peter's plan. Remember, Peter didn't like this plan that Jesus would die and rise from the dead. He actually hated it. He hated it so much that he stood in front of Jesus and rebuked him and forbade him to do this plan. You must not do this plan. But even though they had been told the plan, it wasn't their plan. It wasn't even the plan that they were hoping for or trusting in. Not until they saw that it had happened. It may not have been their plan, but it certainly was God's plan. And it had always been God's plan. God was never shy about this with his people. For thousands of years, he had been very clear. This is what my plan is. And after the resurrection, Peter wrote about how it was Christ's death and resurrection, which fulfilled all that God had written. And had always been God's plan A. In fact, God's only plan. And what was that plan? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is St. Peter who lost the foot race to the empty tomb with John. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, here it is, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by this Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Stop there. So the spirit of Christ was in those prophets for a couple thousand years, telling them about Christ's sufferings and subsequent glories. A translation for Christ would be Messiah. So telling them about the Messiah's sufferings and subsequent glories. Now what does subsequent mean? It means the glories that would come after a fancy word that talks about things that would come after and even because of his sufferings. So what Peter is talking about is the glories that follow that come because of Christ's death. And for the glories to come after Christ's death, he would need to be raised from the dead in order to enjoy those glories. There would have to be a resurrection from the dead. Now I know Easter is not supposed to be a time when you teach theology. And I already broke that rule on good Friday. Remember we, we learned about union with Christ We talked about union with Christ. And so now we can put these two things together, right? Peter said the whole of the Old Testament talked about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now let's put that together with the doctrine of union with Christ. Christ, uh, God elected a bride for Christ. A bride made up of billions of people. And like a pastor declares a man and a woman married, so too God does with the church, Jesus' bride. The two become one flesh. 
And that's why Christ considered her own sin on the cross and was punished for her sin. But it also means that the subsequent glories of Christ would also be shared with his bride. Because the two have now become one flesh. So John just told us that he and Peter had not, not until they saw the resurrection, they had not understood the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the resurrection glories, the glories that belong to Christ because of his death that he'd have to be resurrected in order to enjoy. And those are the same glories that he now gets to share with his dearly beloved bride. These glories, which the scriptures prophesied would become wonderfully clear as we go through these next couple chapters. What were those glories that Christ earned by his death and now enjoys because he rises and shares with his bride and shares it with his let man not separate bride. Let's continue in verse 11 of John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Stop there. Our second point is this. The risen Christ shares the glories of sonship. So not only is Mary weeping because Jesus has died. Now she's weeping because it looks like somebody had played a prank or had done something very cruel and stolen away the body of Christ. And so she sees the, the, the tomb, the, the stone rolled away from the tomb. And, the, and then she sees the angels inside and the angels ask her why she's sad. And she tells them why that she is sad. And then she even sees Jesus outside and she tells him why she is sad. And it's not until Jesus says to her, Mary, that she realizes that this is actually Christ. He was no stranger. And she is now invited as are we and the disciples to share the glories of sonship. Do not cling to me, said Jesus. I must go to the father. And then he gives instructions for, for what to tell the 11 men who abandoned and even denied him. What does he call them? What does he say? Go and tell my brothers. So she is to say these words from Christ. I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. 
And the glories of Christ become the glories of his people because he suffered in their place. Mary and the disciples, because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, can now call God their father. Dear friends, not everybody can call God father. Not everyone is God's child. In fact, when we sinned through our first father, Adam, we followed him into corruption and rebellion and became in our hearts and in reality and in God's mind became his enemies, not his children. Living under the wrath of God for our sin with no right to call him our father. Now he doesn't treat everybody as enemies who are his enemies. In fact, he is gracious and patient and kind with even his enemies. But when they stand before him in judgment, either when they die or when he returns, they will in fact be treated like his enemies for who and what they are. And dear friends, that involves every single one of us. None of us deserve to be called God's children. None of us naturally are God's children. The only human who naturally was God's child is the Lord Jesus. The rest of us deserve to be treated as God's enemies, not his child. But so great was Christ's love for his bride that on the cross, he was treated as an enemy. He took our record and identity. He became sin so that we could enjoy his record and identity, which is child of God. So the risen of Christ shares the glories of sonship. There is no position in heaven and on earth that is more glorious for a human to have than for a created being to have than to be called a child of God. Angels are not sinfully jealous of us, but they know that as glorious as God has made them, as glorious as the position that they have from God, it pales in comparison to being called a child, a son or daughter of God. And this is the glory that Christ shares with us because he died and because he rose. Let's continue reading. We're on a treasure hunt to find more glories that Christ purchased by his death and which he enjoys because of his resurrection. Verse 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors became the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, they, it is withheld. Our third point is this. The risen Christ shares the glory of enjoying peace with God. So the disciples, the evening of that day, Sunday evening, having, uh, having some of them seen the empty tomb, some of them have even heard what Mary said, that she actually saw Christ. They're all gathered together and the door is locked because they're terrified because they are enemies of the people. 
because they were publicly known as Christ's disciples. And so then Christ stands among them. He stands among them, among these people who had abandoned and even publicly denied him. And the first words out of his mouth, thank goodness for them, is peace. In fact, he repeats this. Peace, he repeats it twice. The Lord that they had abandoned. You know, they were his followers. They were the ones who had given up home and had given up careers. Much of them had given many, had given up many things, especially public opinion. They've given that up to follow Christ, his best followers. And then at the time of his cross, they showed that they were actually by nature enemies of his. Even they needed forgiveness for their sins. And that is what Christ says to them. Peace. If you do not know Christ, you do not have peace with God. If you've not repented of sin and trusted in Christ, you may feel like you have peace with God. You do not. Because peace with God is a blessing, a glory that only Christ possesses. And he gives, freely gives to all who believe in him. Fourth point, the risen Christ shares the glories of the Holy Spirit's presence. Did you notice what Jesus did? Kind of an odd little thing that he did, hey? He breathed on them. Now that's definitely not acceptable in today's day, is it? Post-COVID, you don't breathe on someone. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is this when the disciples received the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not. They received the Holy Spirit the minute they believed in Jesus. Because you can't believe in Jesus unless you believe in him. Because belief in Jesus is not merely believing that things are true about him. It is trusting those things and trusting yourself to those things. The Bible tells us that Satan believes that Jesus died and rose. He was there. He knows it happened. But he has not entrusted himself to that. He is not trusting in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ to make him a child of God. In fact, there's nothing more that he hates than the prospect of being a child of God. Being under God's leadership and headship and loving uh, command. And so if you believe in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you are trusting him to make you a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't do that unless the Spirit of God was given. Now we believe, again, theology on Easter, a dangerous thing. We believe that there is one God in three persons. And eternally there has only only been one God and there has always been one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The father elects a bride for the son. And then he sends the son to go save that bride. And then the father and the son send the spirit to go collect that bride, to gather her, to bring her, to care for her, to hold her, to give her faith in him. And Christ's resurrection means that he is the one who gives the spirit of God for which we can enjoy the presence of God. 
It's one thing for your sins to be forgiven. It's one thing for you to actually have sonship or daughtership with God. But the spirit is sent by God, the father and the son, so that we would know it. We would enjoy those things. Our fifth point, continuing to look for more glories that Christ's death and resurrection bring. The risen Christ shares the glories of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a glory that Christ is able to share with his people because of his death and resurrection. It's one of the glories that Christ doesn't need. Christ doesn't need forgiveness because, of course, he is sinless. But we certainly do. The disciples were Christ's official messengers, his spokesmen, his ambassadors. And he promised that the Holy Spirit would work in them to share the gospel and and share the new covenant. A marriage is a covenant. A binding relationship sworn by an oath. And the new covenant, the Bible talks about the new covenant, is a marriage covenant. Oaths that Christ swears to his church, the bride. And in a wedding ceremony, establishing a marriage covenant, that is a beautiful event. It's witnessed by a congregation such as this. And typically at some point in the ceremony, the bride and the groom and the pastor walk to a funny little table with lots of beautiful decorations and they go to sign the register. The marriage documents. Now, who also joins them? You see this often. I, I recall um, wedding uh, rehearsals. It's quite, quite, a, quite a process to practice this with the wedding party. Okay, who's going to come and where are you going to come? And who gets to join them at that table? So you got the bride and the groom and the pastor. Who else? You get the witnesses. You get the maid of honor and the best man. And they get to witness the covenant documents being signed. The disciples were given that role. This is why Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of somebody, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, they, with, with forgiveness is withheld. The disciples were given that role. It was a very special role. And Christ's promise to them is that the Holy Spirit would make sure that they would be able to perfectly create those new covenant documents. And what is the new covenant documents? It's the Bible, particularly the the new Testament. And this is essentially the, the register, the, the wedding documents of the church's marriage with Christ. It tells exactly who is and who is not the bride of Christ. It tells of what his oath is. And therefore it tells who has forgiveness and who does not. The disciples were there. They were the official witnesses. They know who the bride is. They know who the groom is. They know what the covenant is. They did not have authority to make that covenant. Only Christ has that authority, but they do have the authority to record it and record it. They did so that the bride would be able to look at it. And be reminded of her husband's great love and his oaths to her. And she would, be need, she would be, uh, need to be reminded of it more times than she thinks she needs to. She'd need to be reminded of the forgiveness of her sins. That when she would sin, she would be able to look at those wedding documents. 
signed by the witnesses who saw these things happen and be reminded your sins are forgiven. The marriage is not canceled. Sixth point, the risen Christ shares the glories of a beautiful mission. In the middle of this meeting, Christ gives them a mission. Remember, he says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. What is that mission? To go into all the world and to announce peace to the son's bride. Who is the son's bride? You'll find out when you share this covenant document, this gospel, and you just share it around the world. And whoever believes that is the bride emerging and coming forth. Isaiah 52 says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And how could he reign if he hasn't defeated death? And that is our mission too, church. To take the gospel and announce it to everyone everywhere. Because Christ has people everywhere. His bride consists of a people of all nations and all times. And he sends us to go gather that bride. And it is a beautiful, beautiful mission. Let's continue reading John 20, 24 to 31. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. Our seventh point is this. The risen Christ shares the glories of life in his name. A wonderful summary of the gift of the gospel is this. To have life in Christ's name. We no longer live in our own name. We no longer live under our own identity. We no longer live with the identity of I am a sinner or here's the relationship I could build with God. Here's the relationship with God I was born with or the one that I've accomplished. No, we have life in Christ's name. So now we can ask what kind of care would Jesus deserve from the father? What kind of love does Jesus have from the father? How would Jesus' prayers be answered by the Father? And how long would Jesus have a relationship with the Father? Dear friends, that is the gift of the gospel. That we abandon life in our own name. And we receive the gift of life in his name. Enjoying Christ's relationship with the Father. And the life that he has given. 
It also means that God is committed to shaping us into the image of Christ. We no longer are now living as enemies of God, but now God is committed to transforming us to live as sons and daughters of God. He's committed to our holiness. He's committed to our knowledge of him, to our hatred of sin, to our love and enjoyment of him. Life in his name is to enjoy and know the love of God as Christ does. And to enjoy loving God as Christ does. And so to forsake sin and disobedience. And now have a desire to enjoy actions which please God. And this is life in his name. Our eighth point. The risen Christ shares his glories with all who have faith in him. So that this section is paired with poor Thomas's doubting unbelief. Thomas was not with the rest of the disciples when Jesus had first appeared to them, right? We, we see this not until eight days later, did he actually witness the resurrection? He'd heard of it, but he didn't believe. Now we shouldn't be too hard on, on, uh, on poor Thomas. Okay. Because Thomas was promised by Jesus that he would be an eyewitness of his whole ministry. He was supposed to be one of the guys behind the bride and the groom watching this happen, be an eyewitness. And how could he, in good conscience, sign that document if he wasn't even there? If he wasn't there to witness the resurrection? We can be hard on poor Thomas, but it was very important that he actually witness this. Otherwise, he would be a witness by hearsay. In a court case... You can't call somebody up to the stand and be like, well, I heard that such and such happened. No, for Thomas to be an appropriate best man or an eyewitness, he had to be somebody who witnessed the resurrection. These things are not merely ideas, brothers and sisters. These were events that were witnessed by many people and especially by the best men, the disciples, the apostles. And so Jesus invites him. Do whatever test you need to do. Put your hands here. Touch my hands. I'm real. I'm not just a vision. And the other disciples are going to record that Jesus asks for food so he can prove he's not just a vision. Visions don't eat food. So they gave him some fish and he eats it in front of them. And who is it that Jesus shares that glory with? Yes, Thomas, who saw, but also Everybody who believes Thomas's testimony. Everyone who believes in these things. Now, Thomas, Thomas's faith was real faith. Because it's not enough just to know that the, the, the resurrection happened as Satan also knows. But remember, what was Thomas's reaction? He entrusted himself to the truth of the gospel. He calls him his Lord and his God, and he rejoices in these things. Christ promised to Thomas, to the eyewitness, that everybody who believes in the testimony that Jesus left, the evidence that he left very clearly, would be saved without having to see the resurrection themselves. But they can be confident that they too share in his resurrection. Let's continue reading John chapter 21. John 21, verse 1. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were able to not haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his his outer garment, for he was stripped to, uh, for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they did go on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thus far, God's word. Our ninth point, second last. The foolish preaching of the resurrection will bring many sons to glory. Jesus here was proving a point to them. Recall that at the beginning of his ministry with them, he said that they would become fishers of men. And here they are after the resurrection, fishing and catching nothing. And they were using likely very wise tactics They were using great ingenuity and all the things that they had heard and learned. All these things should work. And what did they catch? Nothing. And then Jesus tells them to cast the net on the other side of the boat, which was foolish advice at best. And yet they did it. And what happened? A bigger catch of fish than they were really able to handle. They couldn't even haul it in the boat. They had to drag it. Jesus did not suffer to achieve glory for himself. That glory he had from time began. He suffered in order to share his glory with many. To bring many sons and daughters to glory. And how is that going to be done? How is that going to be collected? By the foolish preaching of Christ's resurrection from the dead. After Christ ascends... After 40 days, uh, after his resurrection, he sends the disciples to go preach the gospel to all nations. And they immediately began to do it. And they just preach the foolishness of the resurrection. And as they do that, large quantities of people from all nations start coming in. They are one. They are saved. And the bride is, is, is being gathered. The church over the years has doubted how effective that preaching would be. The world, those who do not love God, 
they think that this preaching is foolish. I don't need a savior who had to die for me. I might need a good example. I might need good rules to follow in order to be saved or to show that I don't need to be saved. But not a savior who had to die for me. And so the church tries to change her her tactics to attract more people. Maybe get a celebrity to tell them how to become a Christian. Get rich and beautiful people to do it. I know you do happen to have a handsome pastor. That's not on purpose. Maybe tell them how good marriage will be if they become a Christian. Or how wealthy they'll be or how healthy they'll be. Maybe tell them how exciting the music is or how great the activities will be to keep your family busy and positive. And the miracle that Christ performed after his resurrection was securing a promise of the success of foolish preaching. Preach Christ and him crucified and risen. Just do that. Just do that. And multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people from all nations will be added to the household of God. Every single person whom the Lord Jesus died for will certainly be called in with that net and be held as well. Our last point, because I know you have Easter lunches. The risen Christ shares a glorious feast with his people. For those of us who were here on Good Friday, we looked at Psalm 22, which was a very descriptive prediction of the, resur- or the, the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. And in that last section, remember we pointed out that there was a feast noted. That the Messiah would suffer and die for his people. And then somehow afterward, he'd be alive to celebrate a feast. A satisfying feast. Here the Lord Jesus invites his disciples to eat with him. To enjoy fellowship with him. He sits down for a meal with his little church. It's pretty little at that point. But not for long. His brothers, his family. So I want to end with these two things. Dear unbelievers, you are welcome here. But you are outside the family of God. You will not enjoy a place in the family of God when Jesus returns or when you die. Your death will bring your condemnation. You stand condemned. And whether you feel that you are or not, Jesus' own death and his resurrection prove you are in fact guilty and condemned. All are guilty, even his people. But for them, he bore their guilt and hell on the cross. So repent and believe in Christ. Come to him in faith and you can be assured that you will share in his glories. And then this, dear Christian, unless Christ returns before you will die, we expect to be having a funeral for you. But your destiny is not wrath. It's not shame. But it's actually not even merely forgiveness. Your destiny is a place at the family table of God. Not just a forgiven stranger, 
Not even a forgiven dinner guest. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too will be able to enjoy the glories which he deserves. When you, your soul, but also your body will be raised to enjoy what only Christ deserves. And you will be satisfied. So do not turn to other gods or hopes. They cannot satisfy. Do not hope in the relationship that you can accomplish with God. But rest only in what Christ has done. Only Christ can satisfy because only he is worthy to receive those blessings from God, which can truly satisfy. And because he has risen, he shares those blessings, those glories with all who trust in him. He is risen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice at the events, your actions in history that you did not spare your son, but you gave him up for us who were your enemies and that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead on the third day so that he can enjoy those gifts and share them with us. Dear Father, would you take our hopes off of anything other than that and place them only on Christ? That our only plea would be that we would share in the glories of Christ because of his sufferings. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy now the life of Christ. The life not as an enemy, but as a son or daughter of you. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.